Turn with me to the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we'll be looking at beginning in verse 13, verses 13 through 20, considering the church triumphant, considering the church triumphant. Now, any month of considering the church ought to begin with this passage. It's a predictable place to begin, in fact, but it's a necessary place to begin. It's a predictable passage to begin, a series on the church, but it is a necessary passage to begin on the church. It's a mountain peak that the church should return to again and again and again as we consider our founding charter. Matthew chapter 16, let's begin reading in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we bow this morning in worship. We thank you for your word, which is holy and true, fully inspired, fully inerrant, fully authoritative for our lives. And Father, we pray this morning that as we re-engage this passage together, that you would speak to us words that are fresh, words that are instructive, words that indeed are helpful as we conceptualize our lives and ministries and the ministry here at Mission Road Bible Church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to this passage this morning, we don't want to consider it just abstractly. We want to think of it especially as it relates to our own context, our context in the book of Matthew, but also our context as Christians in the 21st century. And if we think of the church today and where the church situates itself, I think it's right to say that the church finds itself in something of a bit of crisis. Now, crisis is a tired word. We hear of crises all the time, and we don't use that word flippantly, but I think it is fair to say and safe to say that the church is ministering in the year 2016 in something of a sense of crises. Externally, there are crises all around. We turn on the news, and we see of terrorism and Islamic jihadism. We see of cultural challenges around as the culture renegotiates again and again and again what it means to be married, what it means to be male and female, what it means to have a sexual ethic. We see a sense of crisis when we consider the cultural pressures relates to religious liberty and the challenges the church is now facing. We all are watching with great concern these days, especially to California with the bill making its way through the state house there that would challenge in very aggressive ways Christian colleges. So we find ourselves ministering in a culture and in a broader context that is a challenge for the church, indeed a sense of crises. Within the church, within the evangelical church, though, I think we see the same. Most evangelical churches are experiencing little growth, if any. Our churches are stagnant. Pulpits are weak. 
Worldliness has crept into the church. Most churches practice a meaningless form of church membership where there is no real distinction between those who are members and those who aren't. Moreover, there is a dearth of young men aspiring to the pastoral ministry and an apathy towards the lost in most of our evangelical congregations. But Matthew 16 shows up for us, and it brings a a tone of confidence, especially as it relates to these five words, which are the linchpin words in this passage. Verse 18, where Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock, he says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. These five words in this entire passage is a promise that the church claims. It is a promise that the church should build its ministry upon. It is a promise to which we serve faithfully, seek to serve faithfully into the 21st century. Now, I want to bring this passage to bear on our moment, our lives, our ministries this morning on this church, and that is what biblical preaching is, is it not? To explain the passage and to bring it to bear on the church in that particular moment, that particular context. Now, as we come to this point in the book of Matthew, we arrive here with focused attention, with heightened attention on Jesus, on his miracles, and on his claims. With each chapter, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are seeking to tighten the noose, to draw the noose tighter around Jesus' neck, so to speak, pressing their claims of accusation against him for his plain statements of deity as the Son of God. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 1, they press him for a sign from heaven. We are told in verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign for heaven. Jesus tells them in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah, a foreshadowing of his own death, and three days in the tomb, and his resurrection. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the onlooking crowd, they, they want a sign. They want Jesus to demonstrate that he is God's son, but he has given them an abundance of signs. In fact, every miracle, every sermon, every act has been an ongoing testimony that he is indeed God's son, making himself equal with God. In fact, the Gospel of John, as you read that carefully, you see again and again this claim where Jesus would state his deity and they would seek to arrest him and kill them for that very fact. So as we come to verse 13, it strikes me as an abrupt shift, almost a non sequitur, that Jesus goes from explaining why they'll not get another sign to instead teaching now on the church. What shall come in the future that he will give this church? Verse 13 tells us that Jesus and his disciples go into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this region some 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, where climate was comfortable and a place for reflection on him and his ministry with his disciples. They are there at the headwaters of the Jordan River, reflecting together on the ministry and on their moment. And Jesus now gives them this great utterance as to what he shall do with his church. Now, as we come to verse 13 in this passage, I see four major movements this morning. 
four movements from this passage that I want to draw your attention to, and I want to do so this morning with you, with each movement really bringing it by way of exhortation from this passage, what we should do with it. The first movement and the first exhortation is in verses 13 through 17. It is this, that we must embrace the church's confession. We must embrace the church's confession. Most people don't realize, but the church is at its heart a theological entity. The church is at its heart a doctrinal entity. In fact, the promise of Jesus' church here is given specifically based upon this confession as who Jesus is. Now, notice verse 13. We're told, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So verse 13 is something of a moment of truth for Jesus' disciples. For two and a half years, they have been following him. They have heard his teaching. They have witnessed his miracles. They have observed Jesus in all of his glory. Yet he now begins to narrow the question to them as to his own identity. And it is a question, the answer to which cannot be of greater consequence. The church rises or falls on what it believes about Christ. Believers, we, our faith, rises or falls, sisters, brothers and sisters, on what we believe about Christ. They enter this region, Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus then asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's, it's something like a first century survey of the opinion of the crowd. In verse 14, the disciples give a public opinion poll. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. John the Baptist. He had been beheaded already, but many Jews thought that Jesus may have been John the Baptist reincarnated. Elijah. Some are saying Elijah. Elijah was considered by the Jews the premier Old Testament prophet. He was to come again, but it was John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah, not Christ. Others, we are told in verse 14, are speculating Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And due to his burden for the lost, Christ was known as the man of sorrows, perhaps linking the two in the eyes of some. Others confess some other prophet any of a number of prophets. So the crowd is ready to compliment Jesus by affirming his unique status. What is interesting about this list is this is a complimentary list. It's full of elite names. It's the pantheon of Jewish Hebrew, heroes. And it is the clearest thinking the crowd has to offer. You see, people were watching. They were having to do something with this man that came teaching and healing unlike any other prophet. And the best assessment public opinion could give was to rank Jesus along the sides of these Jewish prophets. Do you ever watch Christmas or Easter time of year when these documentaries are done to reveal the historical Jesus? And uh, it's always interesting for me to watch, but it's also frightening at the same time. Though these investigative reports and go back and interview some uh, professor at a divinity school, an Ivy League divinity school, and produce 
what they think or who they think Jesus was. And they usually uniformly do two things. They attribute to him unique status as some great teacher, some great moral leader. And at the same time, they always seem to fall short of classifying him as God's son. Now notice what Jesus does in verse 15. Jesus narrows the conversation and focuses it from the question of what the crowd says or who the the public might say Jesus is. They focus it in, Jesus focuses in on who they say he is. But who do you say that I am? You see, this is the heart of the issue this morning, ladies and gentlemen. And I know I'm preaching at Mission Road Bible Church, a church that is well taught, and you receive a steady diet of God's Word every week. But we mustn't cruise by this without stopping to ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? How you answer that question determines everything about your eternal destiny. It determines everything about your spiritual state now. And it determines everything about your basic worldview and how you lead your life and how you organize your family and how you view yourself as a participant of this church. Jesus narrows the question, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, verse 16, who is so often wrong, he gets it wrong a lot, doesn't he? But he gets it right here. Notice verse 16. Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, you are the the Messiah, the anointed one, the one the prophets spoke of, the one humanity longs for, you are the Christ. You see, from childhood, every Jewish boy and every Jewish girl was taught to look for the Messiah. They were looking for this one that their people had awaited for generations, And of course, in this moment, they especially were looking for someone to lead them to political liberty out of bondage from the Romans. And so there had been this pent-up demand, this pent-up expectation for the Messiah to come. And now Peter, he is announcing, you are the one we have awaited. You are the Son of God. Now listen to me, brothers and sisters. I lead a seminary. You have a seminary in your church. You don't have to have a seminary degree to get to heaven. You don't have to attend Bible college to get to heaven. You don't even have to be a, uh, a, uh, a robust disciple to get to heaven. And by that I mean one who's always learning and devouring theology. But you have to be right about who Jesus is. This has been the church's understanding and confession for centuries. The Apostles' Creed, drafted around AD 100, states... We believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. The Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, being of one substance with the Father. The Westminster Confession affirms the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very equal and eternal with God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time came, took upon him 
man's nature. More importantly, the testimony of Scripture is clear. It yells forth again and again, Jesus as the Son of God. John 14, 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. But Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus embodies all that the Father embodies. Colossians 1.15 tells us that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity, dwells in bodily form. John 1, 1 and 14 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And by every discernible aspect, Jesus is God. By His works in Scripture, we are told that Jesus creates, He sustains, He forgives, He raises the dead. He judges. He sends the Holy Spirit. By worship in the Scriptures, we see Jesus receiving worship from angels, from men, from all peoples. By His attributes, He demonstrated the attributes of omnipotence, of omniscience, of immortality. By His names, He received the names Lord and God. By His equality, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is God's Son. And this is the confession the church must embrace. Now, notice what we are told in verse 17. As a footnote, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What do we make of verse 17? It's a subtle reminder to us that every spiritual insight, including conversion, comes at the initiation and the work of our sovereign Lord. Peter gets it wrong so often, and doubtlessly he would have gotten it wrong here. But as Jesus notes, Peter made this statement based upon the movement of the Lord, of the Holy Spirit and his life. The Father revealed this to Peter. Now, this is a footnote, but it bears us thinking about for a moment together. Every spiritual insight, including our conversion, comes by the gracious act of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. I read uh, in recent days a news story, like many of you read, that Donald Trump had become a Christian. Well, that would be newsworthy. And uh, my point now here is not to dive into politics, but I read that with great interest and, frankly, with great cynicism. And uh, this was a, an evangelical leader who had said that he had led Donald Trump to receive Christ and a prayer prayer to receive Christ, and so this was all done. And it struck me in that moment, not just what is wrong with Donald Trump and what is wrong with much of evangel evangelicalism, it struck me in that moment, what is wrong with how most people perceive conversion? Conversion is not getting someone to recite words. 
Conversion is a work of regeneration in the heart. Yes, in concert with repentance and faith. But if conversion was merely getting a man or woman to recite a phrase or to recite a prayer, we could get the whole world converted pretty quickly. That's farcical. And verse 17 reminds us that the work of illumination is the work of the Spirit. Now move with me into verse 18a when we really come into the heart of the passage now. And the second exhortation from our text this morning is this. We must submit to the church's owner. We must submit to the church's owner. One person owns the church. His name is Jesus. I was in a church a number of years ago as a member, and I heard someone say, so what I love about our church is this isn't my church, it's not your church, it's all of our church. Well, brothers and sisters, that's actually nonsense. It's not all of our church, it's, it's none of our church. Yes, Jesus demonstrates and exercises that authority through His Word and by the leadership of His Spirit and through pastors and elders and ultimately even through the congregation itself, But Jesus is Lord. Jesus is founder. Jesus is proprietor. Jesus is owner of his church. Notice verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now when most people read verse 18, there's a temptation to kind of dash to the will build. And that's kind of the dying hope of many dying churches on a street corner somewhere that are about to go out of business. Will build is important, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I am struck, before I'm struck by the will build, I'm struck by the I and the my. The possession. I will build my church. Before we get to that, though, notice the first half of verse 18. I say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock. What is this rock upon which Jesus will build his church? Well, Roman Catholic neighbors, of course, believe this is a a statement of Christ, that he will build the church upon Peter, and a demonstration of power through the papacy in the years to come. And, of course, we believe that is wrong. Jesus says, I say, Peter... Uh, as has been noted by others, Petros, this masculine form of the Greek word for a small stone or perhaps a pebble, and upon this rock, this, this Petra, this mountain, this boulder, this confession, I will build my church. And I actually don't think that's what we're getting at here either. I believe that Jesus is saying, upon this confession and upon the teaching of the apostles, I will build my church. In other words, I will build my church upon the truth. In Ephesians 2.20, we are told that we are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Acts 2.42, the early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. 1 Corinthians 3.11, we are told that no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is Christ Jesus. The foundation of the church is God-given revelation, and Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Indeed, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ 
her Lord. So I believe that Jesus is promising that he will build his church and his church will be built upon the truth in seed form, this confessional statement that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then fleshed out through the apostles' teaching and through the New Testament and the Word of God as a whole. I will build my church. By what stake can Jesus claim the church is his own? What gives him the right to do this? Well, if you think about it, throughout the New Testament, everything we see about the church is connected to Christ. In the Gospels, what do we see? We see Jesus declaring his intent to build a church. We see Jesus dying on a cross for whom? Especially for the church. We come to the book of Acts. We see the church founded in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And then what do we see throughout the book of Acts? We see the preaching of the gospel of Jesus and churches being planted and churches being started and churches growing throughout the Mediterranean region and beyond. We move through the New Testament and we see that Jesus, we are told specifically, rose from the dead for the church. We see epistles being written to the church, instructing them how to conduct their ministry under the Lordship of Christ. We see in the book of Revelation, we see this promise that Jesus will return for his church and that Jesus will judge his church and Jesus will judge all men. And we see in the book of Revelation, seven letters written to seven churches that Jesus claims to own and to oversee and to hold in his hand the messengers of those churches and to walk amongst them as one walking amongst these golden lampstands. How does Christ mediate that rule? He does it through his word and through the elders, the pastors of the church. Why is this important? Because if you understand who owns the church, that should frame everything about a church's own mandate for ministry. If Jesus owns the church, that means he determines how the church is organized. He determines how the church should minister. He determines how the church should conduct its worship services. He determines everything about the church's life and ministry as spelled out in the New Testament. So, for instance, what does the church do during worship? Well, I would argue and do argue that during the worship service, the church is called to do four things. To preach the word, to read the scriptures, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and to offer prayers together as God's people. Why those four items? Why those four things? Because that is what we are called to do in the New Testament. Each one of those are spelled out both prescriptively and descriptively. So that is what the church is to do. And then when you move beyond the worship service to the basic ministry of the church, how we evangelize, the missionaries we send, the ministries we conduct, all of that is informed by the New Testament. And so if Jesus owns the church, and if Jesus is going to build the church, then we had better be about doing precisely what Jesus tells us to do. If the church is our property and our possession and it's up to us to build it, then we better get really entrepreneurial and really creative because we could go out of business with any given week. But of course, it's the former. It's Jesus' church. Now notice with me the second half of verse 18 and the third movement we see in this passage. And the third exhortation I want to bring is this. 
We must labor for the church with confidence. We must labor for the church with confidence. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, just let each one of these five words sink in. I will build my church. 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 I, not Peter, not Gabriel, not Peter, not the elders. Jesus will build his church. Will, not I, not I hope to, not, not if things go right, not if the church crafts its message to be amenable to pop culture. I will. I will build. I love the activity, the industry there. Not I will allow my church to be built. Not I will watch my church be built. Not I will root for my church to be built. I will build. There is an activity to this phrase. I will build my church. Not your church. Not their church. Not the church. Not our church. I will build my church. I will build my church. Not a subgroup of the church. Not a parachurch. The church. That's God's chosen vessel. And any ministry, apart from the congregation, ought to be a ministry that is seeking to strengthen and serve and build the congregation, the local church. So we labor with confidence. We labor as sisters and brothers in Christ in the church with confidence, knowing that Jesus is building it so much so. He says the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Referring to death, the abode of the dead. Jesus is saying that even death itself, meaning the death of great preachers, the death of great saints, God is always raising up a new generation or the, his death himself because he would be raised from the dead. Jesus would triumph over death and with his own resurrection would have the ultimate testimony of authority and power over his church and the truth of this promise. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. As you turn on the news and read the paper and check social media, it feels like everything is collapsing in on us. And on us, I mean by evangelical conservative Christians who live in a country that is increasingly unfamiliar to us. But we have to remember our citizenship even on July 4th weekend, our citizenship is first and foremost a heavenly citizenship. 
and our identity, the way we self-conceptualize in first and foremost an identity rooted in the local church. Not in national affiliation or even local affiliation, but in the body of Christ. That is who we are. And that is a glorious reality. I will vote in November, and I vote in every election. I follow the news as a responsible citizen should, but I promise you, my mood doesn't swing too much these days by what's going on in the political arena. And my hope certainly doesn't swing too much these days by what's going on in the political arena. Because I know that the entity that I'm a part of, first and foremost, is destined to succeed. Now, what is Jesus saying here? How does Christ build his church? In some ways, this is the most misabused or most abused verse in all the Bible. Because every church out there is sought to cling to this one promise for their particular location. And that may not necessarily be true. We all know church buildings that are boarded up and abandoned. There's a couple of different ways we should understand this promise. First and foremost, that throughout history for 2,000 years and into the history future, Christ's church will continue to flourish. There have been eras in church history where it was darker and the witness of the church was more of a glimmer. There have been other areas in church history where the witness of the church has been marked by great illumination and the church has shown brightly. But throughout church history, Christ has always had a remnant, always had a people. As we think of ourselves more locally in congregations, this is not a promise that should facilitate passivity or laziness or lack of evangelism or lack of creativity or being unassertive. No. It is a promise that the Lord is building His church globally, universally, and the church shall triumph. But I do believe it is also a promise for us as we labor in any particular location with pure hearts, in faithfulness to Scripture, committed to sound doctrine, prayerfully preaching the Word, serving, we can know that as we labor, Christ labors with us. And how does He ultimately build His church? Through the preaching of the cross. Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of the message of Jesus. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 1, they wanted to see a sign, and everybody wants a sign these days. And Luke, we meet some men that wanted a sign as well. And Jesus finally said, though one would rise from the dead, you would not believe. A sign would not and does not build the church. Jesus builds the church on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we labor with confidence knowing we don't have to keep up with the Joneses and our church's message and our church's facilities and our church's ministries. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And as we do, Jesus builds His church. 
Now, there's a fourth movement I want you to see in a fourth exhortation, verse 19. And that is this, that we must contend for the purity of the church. We must contend for the purity of the church. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What does this mean? This verse has been the subject of much confusion, especially through our Roman Catholic neighbors. It deserves our careful attention and our careful handling. Jesus is saying this. He cares about the purity of his church. We couple Matthew 16 with the great passage on church discipline. Matthew 18, we see that fleshed out in places like 1 Corinthians. Jesus cares about the purity of every local congregation, of every flock. Binding and loosening here refers to binding someone in their sins or loosening them from their sins. Again, we understand this passage in concert with Matthew chapter 18. And the point is not that the elders of the church have some mystical power to bind or loose. Rather, that authority rests in Scripture. And we, pastors and elders in the church, through understanding the Scriptures, through seeking and exercising wise counsel, we can recognize and we are called upon to recognize and to acknowledge and to announce People's relationship with their sin. And if a person is unrepentant in their sin, then we have on the authority of Scripture the ability and indeed the charge to announce them bound in their sin and putting them out of the church if they will not repent. And when they do repent, bringing them back into the church and freeing them or loosing them from their sin, this is not some instrument we exercise mystically, but rather is an acknowledgement and a declaration of what is taking place in the life of a person and in the life of the local church itself. Do you understand that Christ cares about the purity of his church? The collective witness of any local church, of any congregation, is a derivative of the individual witnesses of the purity of the people within that church? The church in its history has been better at exercising meaningful church membership. What do I mean by meaningful church membership? It means the people that are members of the church actually act like members of a church. They show up, novel idea. They give, novel idea. They serve, novel idea. They lead their lives and their families in a way that reflects the glory of Christ, novel idea. And so you don't have, you know, like 10,000 members in a church and 1,000 that show up on Sunday. No, you have basically about the same number of members that you have that show up on any given Sunday because members of a church are following Christ and they indeed understand themselves as being a part of a body here. A church isn't some place you leave your membership or check your membership. A church is a place where you are part of. It's a family. And specifically as it relates to 19, the call is for the people of God to conduct their lives in a way that does not undermine the credibility of the church. Because every time a believer who's a member of a church goes off the reservation, morally or doctrinally, God's glory is sullied a bit in that congregation and before the community that watches. We are to contend for the purity of the church. 
Well, brothers and sisters, this is the church. This is the church triumphant. This is the church we are called to serve. Let me pull this together with just a couple final words of application. Number one, remember your citizenship this electoral season especially as in the church. Then the Jewish people wanted a liberator. Now some seem to want the same from a political party, a party's candidate. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship here on earth is in the church. Number two, remember we win terrorism, socialism, liberalism, any other form of persecution may exact its toll in this present age, but we ultimately win. We triumph through Christ, and we must always be kindling our eschatological hope. Number three, reflect on the glory of God in the church. Reflect and protect the glory of God in the church, primarily through maintaining its purity. And then fourth, be a man or woman that's for the church. This is what Christ has promised to build. And even as you think of your own relationship in this church, don't think of your primary connection point to be a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study or a youth group or a college ministry. Understand your primary relationship in the church is with and to the body of Christ collectively. I want my children who will be there the next hour, I want them to know the 80-year-old widow seated behind them and the 52-year-old married couple sitting in front of them and the college student sitting behind, beside them just as well as they know children their own age in the church. The church is a body. and We are leaning into this congregation collectively and understand your primary identity as a part of that body collectively, not just some subgroup within the church. This is the church, the church triumphant.